Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Globalization can be defined as an increasing state of free trade, free flow of capital, and tapping into cheaper foreign labor markets. We're discussing how a small group of politicians and writers are using globalization to redefine our political parties. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. So we are joining you for another episode, but before we get started discussing healthcare and the pearls and globalization in the suit, we wanted to talk about our membership drive and we have a big announcement. So the membership drive for those who haven't heard yet is you can subscribe to become a supporter of our show on patreon.com forward slash pantsuit politics, or you can go to our website and click become a supporter. But there are all kinds of different levels of support and you get different benefits based on your level of support. And at $15 a month, you get a bonus episode of Pantsuit Politics every month and they're going to be good. And the first one is going to be Drunk Pantsuit Politics. Beth, are we excited? I think we're excited. I mean, sorry, mom, about this. Well, and can I just say um, that part of the reason I like doing it to Patreons is like, I mean, I am an elected official. I kind of would like that to be like finite group that could take in me drunkly discussing politics. So it's relatively uncomfortable, but we floated this idea on Twitter a while back and the response was amazing. Yeah. And so. We feel like we have to give the people what they want. Yeah. And so we wanted the very first bonus episode to be a good one. So we it won't be out till later in May. So you have plenty of time to go to our website and become a supporter of Pantsy Politics and get all kinds of bonus content. What you love from Pantsy Politics will still be here. We will still be doing two episodes a week. We will still be doing primers, although they will only be in the feed for two weeks. It's just you get all this bonus stuff for supporting the show because it takes a ton of time and energy to produce Pantsuit Politics, and we need the resources to expand the community and to extend, expand the content. So thanks, you guys. Everybody who's already signed up this week, amazing, amazing. I feel like I get an email like every five minutes saying there's a new supporter of the show. So keep it going, guys. We're on the way to our goal. 
Yes, thank you so much. Well, as always, in the Pearls every week, we highlight a couple of news items. We're going to start with the House of Representatives passing the American Health Care Act. Your thoughts, Sarah? So this is a topic we might be expanding on in a later episode, but the covering of politics as a team sport seemed to reach its zenith with this health care bill. It was as if everyone knew that this really wasn't about the policy because everyone knows that it's going to change dramatically in the Senate. And so, you know, the way I had it heard it described over and over again was, well, they just needed to put a point on the board. They just needed a win. They just needed a victory. It was a victory. It was a win. And I'm like, for whom? You know, if we all acknowledge that you know this was never going to become public policy, then what exactly are we winning? In the process to get this bill through the House, the only way to describe this legislation at this point is tortured Mm. because they tried to compromise with moderate Republicans. They tried to compromise with the Freedom Caucus. These are groups within the Republican Party with fundamentally different visions for what healthcare should look like. And what you end up with is this very tortured piece of legislation that has some regulatory reform, some Medicaid reform, tax credits that I think make sense to exactly zero people, no Mm -hmm. matter where you're coming from, the way these tax credits benefit very wealthy Americans at the expense of very poor Americans makes sense to no one. It's a bizarre bill that you're right. No one intends to become law. The House just kept even the supporters of the bill right after it passed by a very thin margin were saying, well, we just need to lob it over to the Senate. They'll fix it. I mean, what? What? And here's the other thing is tortured implies sort of a length of time (laughs) and a, you know, sort of long effort that they do. There's no CBO score. There's just. There's nothing here. There's the same people who railed for seven years about how Nancy Pelosi said that we needed to pass Obamacare to find out what's in it did the same mm-hmm. thing here. They did not read it before they passed it. And One it makes me said livid. he didn't read it. Just said openly, like, well, I didn't read it. What? They couldn't have. It wasn't publicly available until like hours before the vote. Mm. Mm. He was like, we really depend on our staff. Okay. Okay, friend. Yeah, that's a good excuse. It's just, it, and also there is an extensive conversation because they made it possible for states to decide what were essential benefits, perhaps to put lifetime limits on coverage back in place, and most controversially to allow for pre people with pre-existing conditions to be put into high-risk, high-cost pools. That's like an option they gave to states under the very weak argument that it was all about states and local control. And I posted about this on our Facebook page. My, my youngest son, Felix, had a stroke after he was born or maybe right before he was born. We don't know exactly why. So he's a pre-existing condition. I can't imagine the economic impact of living in a high-cost high risk pool your entire life like these things are so expensive and you know he's a baby (laughs) i just oh it's so infuriating so there's a group of republican senators working on this it sounds like orrin hatch is going to be very influential in the process ted cruz is involved it's a wide-ranging mix of people ideologically it is not a diverse group of people by any other measurement. And that has also caused concern and controversy, rightly so. It's unbelievable to me that they can't find a single woman senator to include in this conversation. And they've said, well, we're not going to play identity politics with health care. Well, you know what? Identity is very relevant to health care. It just is. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that with regards to sort of the process and the debate over pre-existing conditions, And just the way it was handled from top to bottom, it was just so sort of shallow and empty. And I did not, I was either outraged by the policy conversation because it seemed so inhumane in a way, or just had a sort of this righteous anger because it seemed like it really wasn't about the policy. It was just about 
putting a win on the board. And I don't really understand even how this is a win, particularly for moderate Republicans. I don't know if they just thought it's more important for Congress to seem like it's doing something than it is for me to support a bill that's going to harm me in my moderate district. I, I don't I don't understand the pol- the political calculus there. And look, anything that is done on health care is very difficult. The Affordable Care Act was difficult for a reason. Anything done since then is going to be hard. It is a hard topic. And it is easy to oppose any work being done on health care as being cruel and inhumane and unfeeling. And so I don't envy them this task. But if the point here is to show that you're capable of governing, this didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they barely got this over the the majority mark. And that's with control of the House and the Senate. I mean, this just looks like a party in complete chaos. And to have that chaos exposed on something as difficult and as personal as health care, I just can't think of a worse thing to happen. I mean, the only political calculus that I can understand here is that maybe putting this first gets it over with well in advance of yeah, the 2008. Yeah, we talked about that on the last you know? vote, too. Well, and but I think and, I, you know, I've heard several conversations about this. You know, I'm disappointed in the political calculus on the Democrats end because this idea of, well, they'll just take this terrible vote and it'll hurt them electorally. Like it's still pretty risky to lob such a dangerous bill that affects so many people's lives to Mitch McConnell, who is very good at his job. And it concerns me that we could end up with some because this one's so bad, we could end up with something that still harms so many people. And there's just one less roadblock between taking people's health insurance away. I don't know. The political calculus from the Democrats in their celebration of the passage of this as such a bad political move confused me because to that point, before Democrats saying like, na-na-na-na, goodbye on the House floor. Well, I, I contend, and I told, said this to Dante, too. Let's just not, let's not say Democrats. There are a lot of Democrats. They were all, weren't all singing. So whoever chose to do that does not represent the entirety of the party. But I well, take and, your point. And to be fair, not all Republicans voted for this bill either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can't lump everybody. But the group of people who chose to do that, it was so strange because they were all carrying the high road to that point by saying, Look, if we want to talk about actually fixing the Affordable Care Act, I'm down. Right. I'm I'm happy to work on a bipartisan basis to do that, but I'm not going to repeal. I'm not going to support anything that purports to repeal, which, by the way, this purports to repeal, but it doesn't. Mm-mm. So I just think it was strange to suddenly do something so immature and that belied that um, high road that they had taken so far. Right. Right. Well, in France, we have a little bit better um, functioning political system, apparently, than oh, what's going on in the United States right now. Vive la France. We learned today that Macron, the Emmanuel Macron, the moderate French candidate, and again, we use those terms very loosely because it's not a perfect overlay to American politics, but the candidate who supports remaining in the European Union and a host of other more conventional policies decisively defeated Marine Le Pen, who was the nationalist candidate. And I think most of the world breathed a sigh of relief. I just couldn't take one more surprising populist victory. I just I'm worn out on those. I needed some good news. I feel like this was Francis Chant to sort of remind us that they act as if they are superior for a reason. <laughs> because they might actually be. This process moved along really fast, too. If you think yeah. about the length of the American process versus this one, it's kind of impressive how they just kind of get in and out. Well, and they had them. And we should also say they had a massive hack. Macron's campaign's email was hacked in an effort to sort of destabilize the electoral process. Thankfully, that didn't seem to have its effect. So that's reassuring. Well, an interesting part of why I think it had very little effect is that some of the major media outlets in France refused to cover the hacked emails until after the election. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I didn't realize that. That's great. Lesson learned, everybody. Lesson learned. It is nice when you can recognize learning, right, Mm -hmm. in the world. Like, here's a thing that happened. Here's a similar thing going on. 
maybe we'll handle it differently this time. Absolutely. I don't know. Republicans in the House, I would just, you know, take take an example. Take it in. Take it in. Are you ready to compliment the other side? Yes. I wanted to compliment Senator Kirsten Gillibrand this week. She is releasing a series of videos and she's encouraging people to run for office. And it's really nice to see. I think it's nice to see people who are sitting in office encouraging other people to run. And her videos are personable and friendly. And she's saying, don't think that you don't have the skills or that you're not tough enough or you're not smart enough. You can do this. And I just thought it was encouraging and something that all civic servants should do. Well, I would like to compliment uh, Senators Lamar Alexander and Bob Corker. Bob Corker is getting a lot of love for me recently, but they were both sort of funny about the health care bill coming out of the Republican. I believe it was Bob Corker who said, I stopped paying attention. Like there's just this sort of they were very blunt about the fact like we're not going to even entertain this bill as a starting point. We are working on our own health care bill moving on. I think I like Bob Corker in some of the ways that you like Kirsten Gillibrand. Like he's just he's out of caring in a lot of ways right mm-hmm. now. And I really appreciate how open he is. But he's a serious guy, too. He knows his stuff on foreign policy. So I um, approve of your compliment for Bob Corker. Yeah, this is a good week. We both had good ones. In this suit today, we're going to talk about what it means to be a Republican anymore in light of globalization being sort of the dividing line. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash pansy. We've been talking for the suit, which is the part of our show where we take a deeper dive into a particular issue about globalization. Sarah, you had this idea to talk about an episode of This American Life, and then it seemed like op-eds just started piling up that reinforced the conversation. Well, the first one I read was a few weeks ago, and it was R.R. Reno in the New York Times, uh, a piece called Republicans Are Now the America First Party. And it was so well-written, and it was just basically like, you've said this several times, like they're not acting like small government matters. Uh, there's not this emphasis on conservative principles. And this editorial just like laid it out like that's not what it's about anymore. Look around you. It's about nationalism. It's about um, anti-globalist sentiment. And so I read that when it was like already a seed in my mind. And then This American Life did an amazing episode called The Beginning of Now, which was about um, the primary story was about Eric Cantor and his defeat as um, was it House Majority Whip? Leader? He was the House Majority Leader. No, Bonner, uh, Boehner was the leader. He was the whip. Boehner was the speaker. Oh, speaker. Yeah, you're right. He was House Majority Leader. And I remember when he was defeated, like my Schadenfreude was like so good. And now I'm like, oh my God, it really was the writing on the wall. Like they, particularly they talk about the the motivating power of immigration as a policy issue or anti-immigration, I probably should say. And they talk about Breitbart and the rise of Breitbart and sort of how the tentacles of people really in the media and other um, political areas motivated by this issue have just grown and grown and grown until you have somebody like Stephen Miller as a, you know, White House advisor, a very high up White House advisor and, and, and Steve Bannon. And so, you know, all these pieces just sort of kept um, making the point over and over again that the the motivating sort of boogeyman or monster in the conservative or in the Republican party isn't big government anymore. It's globalism. The episode of this American life was a little bit chilling for me because of the very tiny group of people Mm -hmm. who for a a few years have been working in concert and seem to find in Donald Trump, their microphone. Yeah. Well, and I, but I think that, you know, Well, I'm skipping ahead. Let's keep on with this conversation. So they talked about Laura Ingram, Jeff Sessions, Julia Hahn, who had worked with Laura Ingram, I think, before going over to Breitbart, Steve Bannon, obviously, Stephen Miller. And that's really kind of the circle from which this seed of nationalism as a guiding philosophy generated. And it was just crazy to me to think about the fact that in 2014, no one had really heard of Breitbart yet. All of these people were just considered fringe. Jeff Sessions was basically powerless as much as you can be in that office. And then suddenly, by 2017, they're the highest people in government in a lot of ways. And and Laura Ingram is practically functioning as an arm of the executive branch on her radio show. It just takes my breath away how fast that idea took root. Well, but here's the thing, though. It took root in fertile ground. Absolutely. There, there is a incredibly rich and, like I said, fertile foundation um, of sort of anti-other, especially in the Tea Party. And think about, if you want to talk about sort of the nationalism and the racist tendencies that can motivate this line of thinking, I mean, just look at the way people talked about Barack Obama. It was like, you know, I think it was a combination of the election of Barack Obama, somebody seen as other, the 2008 financial crisis in which people felt left behind, and left out of the um, global economy and, you know, that it is a global economy and that people for all their sort of maybe misattribution of the source of this problem, they're not stupid. They can look around and see that things are changing dramatically and that certain populations are being left out and sort of changing the changing demographics of this country. Like all these things are just like fuel, 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 fuel. And like the, the, 
was just waiting for the right accelerant to come along and blow the thing wide open. And, you know, I think that was Donald Trump in combination with him being having the right opponent. And I mean that word differently than I usually use it (laughs) with regards to Hillary Clinton and sort of the unique obstacles she had a combination of her choices and the way those choices were handled in the media and by the FBI. I mean, it's just like when you think about all these different pieces that that came together to allow this very particular worldview to kind of gain so much traction and power within our governments, kind of mind boggling, mind boggling. These articles have been helpful to me in some ways because it helps me understand that I am not having the same conversation that Mm -hmm. lots of people are having, that the version of the Republican Party that I signed on for, and I've never been a red meat person, right? I've always been a moderate to my core. But but I was a moderate in the Republican Party that was more built on Ronald Reagan principles. And as the pieces that we're going to put in our show notes point out, that's just gone. Yeah. There is no trace of that left. Mm-hmm. And to me, I, I don't know what to do now because I'd like to go change my registration to independent. I don't see any room for myself in the Democratic Party. I feel like I have thoroughly explored that option (laughs) and I don't see any room for myself there. I'd like to change my registration to independent. Kentucky is a closed primary state. And so I think, do I do what happens if everyone like me stops voting in primaries? Yes. Doesn't the system just get more and more extreme? Well, here is what I'll say about this. I think that. This worldview has to have um, the right combination. And for, like I said, for a lot of complex reasons, it found it in this election cycle. But I do not think that this is a winning strategy. And they make this point in This American Life, and I agree with it. This is not a winning strategy long term for the Republican Party. He only won by 80,000 votes in a couple of states. It's not like he won the popular vote. I don't think this is a winning, you know, this long game works out well for them. I think it depends on what this game evolves to be, because on the one hand, when you talk about globalization, you're talking about economic systems, right? How much trade do we want to allow? How much labor from U.S. companies do we want to allow to go overseas? How much do we want to import? And you could argue that you move some of those levers that maybe we have gone too far on some of those levers, right? And that you could roll mm-hmm. some of those back in a way that inures to the benefit of the American people. And if that happens, then I think the Trump presidency takes on a very different shape than it has right now. But the part of this conversation that seems to be resonating much more with people, and certainly that seems to be the driver for Trump and company, is much more about identity. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is the losing long term argument. Yeah. Well, and, you know, globalization isn't over. I think that I've read a lot of really great pieces that just talk about like we have another phase coming, particularly with automation. And it's, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better economically. And I should hope that we figure out that, or at least the Republican Party sees the writing on the wall, that blaming people who look different is not the solution to those global problems. It's not the solution in Europe, and it's not the solution here. There's this fascinating section of the This American Life where they interview Pat Buchanan and are basically like, so how do you feel that about the fact that Donald Trump ran on the platform you lost on forever and won? And they kind of talk to him about this and in and ira glass says because he basically admits at one point pat buchanan admits that like i just don't i think it's a white judeo-christian nation and people who look and act differently make me uncomfortable and ira glass was like really because the more people i feel like that are that i meet that i feel like are different than me i learned that they're we're really not that different at all which is it was a really lovely moment but and i and partly because pat buchanan was being honest and not angry and not mean about it he was just being transparent and that's why that moment was allowed to sort of come about but you know that 
that idea of, you know, I'm going to look back and I'm going to decide what I think this country was and our changing demographics are the real economic problem. No, you're the real problem are robots, friends. Like (laughs) if you want to get mad at somebody, get mad at the robots. And so I just don't think that that because it's no matter who you blame or who you kick out, it's not going to help. It's not going to change automation or the technological advances like you're going to figure out eventually like we're we're doing all these things we're putting quote unquote America first and it's not making it's not expanding the middle class so i mean i don't know maybe i'm being overly optimistic well i think technology is a huge part of what's going on and can't be understated also i'm reading i mentioned this on another episode i'm reading this book that our listener tamala gave me which is so good thank you tamala for this book the price of prosperity by todd buckles And it's about why rich nations fail. Mm. And it takes a very lengthy historical look and is a good reminder that America is a baby country compared to the timeline of Earth. And so our problems, though they seem new to us, are not really new problems. And we are living out what lots of very wealthy nations have lived out in the past. And the point that he makes about globalization is that it's a paradox. You can't continue to gain wealth as a nation without adopting a globalist framework. You just can't do it. And you cannot preserve your national culture. Like globalization is necessarily going to dilute identity in a way that causes problems. Yeah, but the and thing you is, just have to reckon with I those get that, two but things. it's like, isn't aren't we unique even as a baby country because we're not built on the shared national culture? I don't see America as sharing a culture the way Norway or France or even Britain does. I guess it depends on how you define culture. I think that we have a more varied culture than any of those countries by design and that it is a part of our value system. I also am trying to understand how that doesn't feel true to many Americans, right? How they feel like there is something American that is being diluted. I have never, I just truly am, am struggling to get there, especially as I'm immersing myself in the people who hate globalism for my extreme exit the echo chamber that I'm doing for our patrons. I have never felt that something different than me in it's any bad. way impacts my thing, right? Yeah, it's like it's so hard to put yourself in that space. It, it's it, it so hard. Ha- you define marriage however you want to. It doesn't affect my marriage. Like I, I just kind of have always looked at everything as a big buffet and like all these items can sit next to each other on mm-hmm. it. And, and I've never had a sense of, oh, if this comes in, it's going to take away the power of my thing. So I'm I'm not able to connect with what I think is a very emotional reaction to diversity in our country. Well, I'm just not able to. I can put myself back in the space of my time in the Southern Baptist Church in my youth group when there was a narrative about the threat to the way we believed and that their culture was a threat, in particular, sort of the growing acceptance of uh, different sexualities and the, you know, sexuality outside of marriage and all this. And I was like, I remember that narrative. I vaguely remember that feeling of like, yes, this is a threat to what we believe. Like I can get myself there. And I think that is, it's not just that they feel, I think it's not just people who are anti-globalist and nationalist and, and, feel, you know, sort of the the strangers in their own land, the the people who feel like the line is being cut. It's not just that they feel that there is a threat to the way they believe. It's that they feel like the way they believe is no longer acceptable. It's not that other people are coming in and saying, I think something differently. That's I think they think they feel people are coming in and say, I feel something differently in the way you think is wrong. Like there's a great another New York Times piece called uh, The Collapse of American Identity that one of the listeners shared with us. And it was just talking about like, you know, it's something crazy, like 36 percent of Republicans think that African-Americans are being discriminated against only like 36 percent. 
but like 68% think that white Christians are discriminated against regularly. So it's not just that you, you come in with a different religion or a different culture and we have to coexist. It's that you come in and you tell me the way, or that at least that the, the feeling and the perception they have is you come in and you tell me the way I feel is not okay. It's not PC and it's, and it's racist and it's discriminatory and it's unethical. And like, that's like a whole other ball of wax. It is. And there are a couple things going on there. I think my, my first reaction is how much validation do you need? Word as the predominant race as a, but that's the thing, right? They're not going to be Why is not going to be. It's like for the very first time, it's one thing when you're living the sixties and everything's a threat, but you're still got the main seat at the table. And you occupy the most seats. But now. That's just it. Right. When I think about especially the conversation about religious freedom, I absolutely believe in religious freedom as a bedrock principle in our country. And I believe that includes both freedom of and freedom from religion. When we're talking about laws that expressly permit discrimination against certain people as a way to facilitate other people's freedom of religion, what we're talking about is not protecting something with the law. We're talking about using the law as a weapon against Mm -hmm. other people. And I guess I just don't understand why we can't stay neutral, right? You have your freedom of religion you don't because have in their to. minds, there's so much at stake. You can't be neutral when eternity's on the line. Yeah, it's hard for me to understand that stake. It really, that's what's hard for me. That, that to put it in the terms that we keep having this ridiculous conversation, that eternity is at stake over who can buy a cupcake at your shop. I right. don't understand. Well, I don't know. You know, I've read the entire Bible. I, you know, lived in a very, uh, a culture that said the the word of God was the, you know, the Bible was the literal word of God. And the truth is homosexuality doesn't get that much play. I'm not getting saying it gets zero play, but like it doesn't get that much play. It's not a central tenet of the teachings of Jesus Christ. There is a, you know, any more or less. Anger than div- gets a lot more play. Yeah. Let's any be more or less than divorces. So that's the part that that is just a, sort of the fundamental disconnect for me. But I think that, you know, I can get myself in that space. I can get myself in that space where who I am and what I believe is are all of a sudden culturally unacceptable. Um, sort of, and I, I do think there's something to be said for the fact that there needs to be a space for people who subscribe to more traditional Judeo Christian values to feel like they have an identity that, that is not, that it is an identity. It's an okay, and that's an okay identity to talk about. But it's just, it's so, and you know, we had this conversation with Tamela when she, when we had, when we had her on the podcast that like, um, there, as sort of that white Judeo-Christian heritage is, um, increasingly becomes a minority demographically, then we need to find a, an outlet and a way for people to feel you know, proud of their identity and proud of their history in in certain ways without, because I, I just think we see the ugliness that happens otherwise. I think we see like when people, and this is true of all, of all identities, when you, you know, there's lots of really interesting studies about how African-American children, when they are allowed to sort of embrace that identity, do much better than when they're told like it sort of doesn't matter. Oh, everybody's the same and it doesn't matter. Like, People need that identity. They need something to sort of hang their hat on. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think the more we sort of try to tell them to shut up and move on, it just gets worse. And I don't want to like reward bad behavior as the case may be, but I mean, there's something going on here. Well, I think that one of the quotes that stood out to me in the the first piece that got you thinking about this was this. Globalism poses a threat to the future of democracy because it disenfranchises the vast majority and empowers a technocratic elite. It's a telling paradox that the most ardent supporters of a borderless world 
live in gated communities and channel their children toward a narrow set of elite educational institutions with stiff admission standards that do the work of border control. Mm -hmm. The airport executive lounges are not open and inclusive. John Q. Public is not stupid. He senses that he no longer counts, and he resents the condescension of globalist elites, which is why Mr. Trump's regular transgressions against elite enforced political correctness evoke glee from his supporters. But I'm so lost here. Like, you know, I'm not saying that Steve Bannon is a good person. He is not. But at least he is consistent when he says Jared Kushner is the enemy here. The fact that you would have fears about undocumented workers and be a Breitbart reader and be all about anti-globalism and America first and then be happy to watch Jared Kushner go make money off his global access through the White House boggles the mind. Well, this is the power of propaganda, right? Mm -hmm. Because we take the two extremes of this struggle and we park ourselves in one of those categories or the other. When I listen to Alex Jones, as I have been trying to do lately, and I say trying because for the life of me, I don't know what he's talking about <laughs> most of the time. Not I don't understand how yeah, someone yeah. could like feel this way. I literally can't, can't put follow the points it. together. Yeah, I feel yes. Like. But but when I hear that message and I think about someone like Steve Bannon, who I do not believe has suffered at the hands of globalism in any way. Well, apparently it's a lot about his father. He feels like his father played by the rules and got screwed. Lost a pension, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he's put his arms around all of these people and said, let's hate on our neighbors, right? Right. And so now you have on the more progressive side of things, a group of people who are sort of taking the elite mantle on, right? even though they're like the farthest from elites we can imagine. And in a good way, I'm saying that lovingly. <laughs> these are not these are not people living in gated communities, channeling their children toward Ivy League schools, trying to exclude other people. But they're taking that elite mantle on because it's the opposite of the Steve Bannon thing. And we're all pointing fingers at each other as though we live in these two extremes mm -hmm. when we absolutely don't. Mm -hmm. And when the truth is, probably globalism has raised our standards of living in a lot of ways. It's true that globalism has probably helped the conditions of being poor in the United States as much as anything else. Right. And the, across the world. Absolutely. And so th there's nothing black and white about this, but we've turned it into a fight via, I think, very deliberate propaganda. And that's what concerns me about what's happening next. I shared with you in a text message, Sarah, that I listened to this episode of This American Life. And then after it was over, I turned on the This American Life episode about Vladimir Putin and his propaganda kind of machine in Russia. And I just saw so many parallels between kind of what was going on in both sections. And that is not to say anything about coordination, which we'll talk about another day. But the pattern and practice of reinforcing messages over and over and over again, and even kind of building up your own opposition, which I think Trump does very often, um, it, it concerns me about the power grab that's occurring at the at the expense of like ordinary people who I think don't intend to be engaging in what R.R. Reed is calling the new domestic Cold War. R.R. Reno, sorry, is calling the new domestic Cold War. Well, and my issue is, you know, look, this is what I tell people. I'm a Democrat for a pretty basic reason. It seems to me like they f it falls out in two ways. Either you think the problems in this country are the fault of the poor, or you think the problems in this country are the poor fault of the rich. I'm a Democrat. I think mostly they are in the vault of the rich. And I th mean that in like, I think if anybody's exploiting the system, it's the people with the power, not the people who don't vote or can't vote or rarely vote or excluded from voting. Like, I just think when you look at who, okay, who does this system benefit? Who's really pulling all the levers possible? I mean, it's Jared Kushner, not undocumented workers. Like, I don't, not to... Not to characterize this in the most binary way possible, which you just said is not really the problem, but like I just I I do think to a certain extent, I guess I'm not saying that that is a simplification 
like that's the entirety of the problem. But that is the simplification of how it's characterized. You know what I mean? Like even if it's it's not a nuanced description of what's actually going on, but it is a pretty um, accurate description of how the problem is portrayed. Like you're either blaming um, the people at the bottom or blaming people at the top. And it's like, why wouldn't you blame the people with power? Well, and so what's interesting to me about that description is I have always put myself in the Republican camp because I believe those levers are always going to be manipulated by someone. And so my interest is in making sure they pull as little as possible. Mm. Right. I think government is always a risk that power is always at risk of being manipulated. And so my interest has always been in keeping that power small. But that is clearly not what the Republican Party stands for. And I guess that's my question for you as we wrap this conversation up. What do we do now that our labels don't make sense anymore? Because here, I don't see the Democratic Party as homogenous either, or as anything close to having kind of an ideologically coherent vision right now that is anything other than against Donald Trump. And I don't think that you guys want people like me coming in and saying, well, like, wait, 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 let's pull back on some of these federal programs. So do we just disband with all of this? Because my take is that the election that just happened made a lot of people way, way more partisan and made those of us like me. And I think it's a small group of the you know American population feel politically homeless and just kind of. Uh, disdainful of all of the partisans. No, I disagree. I do want you in the Democratic Party, although it would really disrupt the structure of our show. Um, <laughs> I think that <laughs> um, I do think that I don't think there's anything at risk by having this conversation about the best function of government take place within the Democratic Party. I don't. I am not fearful at all of someone going. What is our purpose with this program and are we succeeding at that purpose? I'm not scared of that conversation. Bring it on. But what every, you know, what most people I think in the progressive progressive camp and dem- the Democratic camp generally is I haven't felt for a very long time that that conversation in the Republican Party was sincere or authentic. It never felt like I'm I mean, it's outside of a few figures that this was an honest exploration of how best government should function. It was just scale it back as much as possible because we want to allow people to make more money. I mean, that's sort of like, that's the caricature. And I don't think it's unfairly placed in a lot of ways. You know, listen, stereotypes are based in truth. They're just not complete, right? That, And so I think that that's the problem. It's not, I'm not scared of that conversation. Let's have that conversation. There's nothing, there's, um, you know, Nothing lost when we talk about is government functioning the best it can. Is it functioning the most efficiently that it can? Are we and I don't think Barack Obama was scared of those conversations. I think that those, you know, let's do this the best we can. Let's make sure we're succeeding um, in the way we want. Like, I would welcome those conversations. I'm not for expanding the government as the only solution in our um, sort of arsenal. Like, I'm, I'm fine with that. Well, I think it's just hard to I think you and I can have that discussion because we know each other's intentions beyond our relationship and maybe our community of listeners. I think that we've layered so much onto the parties that there are all these assumptions. Like I was thinking about the mayor's race in Cincinnati and uh, my friend Andrew commented that maybe the turnout was low because there were three Democrats running. They were three Democrats with vastly different visions for the city and vastly different, I think, approaches to leadership. But because they're Democrats, like Democrat, what does that mean at the local level? Even I think if you and I were sitting on a city commission together, I don't think we disagree on much. No. And it always wears me out. People be like, I mean, I, you know. I'm not a Democrat. I mean, I'm, I am socially liberal, but I'm fiscally responsible. And I'm like, oh yeah, not me. I'm not fiscally responsible as a Democrat. Like I say, spend, nobody thinks like that. Like nobody thinks like I will waste government resources at all costs. Like I don't think they do anyway. I think they're probably few and far between. Like everybody wants to be fiscally conservative and be smart with the money and serve the most people with the most efficient use of the resources. Like, come on guys. Like it, yeah, they, you know, I do think though you could diffuse a lot of this by saying, I'm 
I'm a moderate who feels lost. I think if you laid yourself a moderate, you could have it have a productive conversation outside of a personal relationship. So thought experiment, then if if we are truly moving in a long term way toward a world in which Republican means nationalist. And Democrat means globalist, although I think that's got a big asterisk on it, right? Because Bernie Sanders' popularity would belie the notion that lots of Democrats are I interested think, yeah, in I globalist philosophy. I think any philosophy. sort of Bill Clinton, neoliberal, globalist um, position has always been in a tenuous, uncomfortable spot within the Democratic Party, honestly. So then I don't know what because happens. It's union, right? Come on, that's complicated. And I guess that depends on... So let's, for our thought experiment decide that Trump's nationalist message is beyond economic and really is mostly fueled by identity, right? Because then the Democratic Party absolutely wants to be the the other side of that. Yeah. So the Democratic Party then becomes a big tent of people who believe in a diverse nation. Listen, it didn't become, it already is. You were at the convention. <laughs> But but I'm saying it starts to fold in people like me, right? Yeah. And it starts to make space for different economic views, for different views on the size and scope and power of government. And you have all these ideas within the Democratic Party kind of germinating and being debated out. How do you fundraise? How do you run candidates? Because this gets back to a conversation that we've had before and that I talked about with some folks at Vox, too. If we approached the process of electing people as a hiring process, I see how that vision bears out. Because you could say, look, I don't agree with this person on everything, but I think this is a person who would be thoughtful about the issues and dedicated. And we don't have to agree because I trust the process to make things work pretty well. And and I see enough good in this person that I want to hire them for this role. But that's not what we do. We buy them. Right. And we say, does, is this person a product mm-hmm. that I want to put my money behind and my money being my vote? And with that philosophy, I don't know how a truly diverse, ideologically diverse party gets candidates elected. Well, I think it depends on the level, too. I do think people did that in my election. I think people said, I know I don't agree with her on everything, but. You know, I know her as a person and I think that, but it's like, you know, that's such a different situation because it's a local election. It was nonpartisan. So I, I don't know. Can we, we should, we can make everything nonpartisan. <laughs> It'd be like a surprise. It'd be like revealing the gender of your baby. Surprise. You just voted for a Republican. Well, so what do you think are the takeaways from this discussion? To me, the the top one is to be extremely skeptical of media right now and to really approach it with a critical eye, because I do think this globalism narrative is selling people a bill of goods. Yeah, I think that the takeaway for me is that Donald Trump promised to blow things up and drain the swamp. And he promised a lot of change. And so far, he has most certainly achieved that inside the Republican Party. Which leaves me probably not a Republican and scratching my head about where to go from there. And I think there are a lot of people like me. Yeah, for sure. I think so, too. And I think that, you know, the the, the first step is awareness and just recognizing that um, if you are a conservative concerned with small government, that that's just not the national conversation we're having and to be aware of that. So next up in the heels, we'll talk about, as we always do, what's on our minds outside of politics this week. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So Beth, we're in Kentucky, and yesterday was the the night we're recording. is Sunday, so we yesterday was the Kentucky Derby. Did you pick a winner? I did not pick a winner. I really didn't even know the names of the horse racing. Sometimes I'm not a very good Kentuckian. I did have a mint julep. I went to a party, and then I left the party early because we had baseball tickets because that's kind of our thing. And we watched the Derby on the jumbotron at Great American Ballpark. That's hilarious. I went to a party. I wore a hat. I made bets. I watched the Derby. I drank more than one mint julep. I drank lots of different, ate lots of different combinations of chocolate and pecan. And that's important. It is. Um, and I had a fantastic time. I love the Kentucky Derby, although I've never been. I feel like a bad Kentuckian. I've never actually been to the Derby, but I'm in Western Kentucky. So this is not exactly the thing here. I mean, it's fun. We have parties, but it's far. My favorite Derby ever was watching the Derby from Keeneland, which is a gorgeous racetrack in Lexington, Kentucky. So we watched it on the screens, but there were other races going on that day. That is a very fun place to be on Derby Day. I bet it is fun. I bet it is fun. Um, I did not pick a winner. We just picked our hat. We made bets, but we had to pick our horses out of the hat. And I didn't even pick it. Usually I, I can pick a winner sometimes based on the name or whether or not I like the jersey. It's very scientific. And Based on the jersey in the paper, I picked the best, uh, the horse with the big best odds, but the muddy track, I think, really disrupted the way the horses usually run. And so it wasn't, I don't think it was one of the odds on favorites, but it had a great name. The winner was always dreaming, which is a really, that's it, the, if you were picking based on the fun name, I, th- I had a lot of friends in my Facebook feed that were like, you gotta always be dreaming. That's why I picked this one. And they won money. So Yahoo. It is a really good name. Can I tell you about my day last Thursday before we go and why I love many of our listeners? Yes. So last Thursday was my very last session of Leadership Northern Kentucky, which I've talked about on the podcast several times. And it was Justice Day. So we started the day at a court watching arraignments. We watched an hour of arraignments. This is not an uplifting 
way to participate in the world. Because so many of the people being arraigned, I realized, were there for a very minor thing that spiraled out of control because they didn't take care of it. Mm. Someone got a ticket for driving without a seatbelt and then didn't pay the fine and then had a court date and didn't show up for the court date. And suddenly they're sitting in jail, yeah, right, it's over just, a traffic oh. violation. It's awful. And there's, um, I just read an article, I think there was a recent um court decision where a judge said that like cash bail like that was unconstitutional. Like if you get, because it's just punishing the poor and those ticket situations in particular, just spiral. And also with love, I've never had a white friend get pulled over for not wearing their seatbelt. Well, it hit me too, that all of the life skills that you need to get out of this situation, once you're in it, if you had them, you wouldn't be in this situation, mm-hmm. right? That, like I, there were several people and including white people who had multiple traffic issues in different counties in Northern Kentucky. If you don't know, Kentucky has a bazillion counties. All of the counties. Like like probably the other side of my closet should technically be in a different county in Kentucky. That's the way it's set up. So people had multiple county issues and they're in the courthouse. And you can tell that they truly don't understand that this judge can't solve all those issues. This judge is only the judge for one of those counties. And I kept thinking, if you knew how to deal with this kind of situation, you would have just paid the initial traffic ticket and been done with this, or you would have gotten your license renewed or whatever it was. So that was very depressing. We leave that and we hear a wonderful speaker, Dr. David Singleton, talk about the Tyra Patterson case. And I'll put links in the show notes. I want to talk about this case more fully sometime. I'm very into criminal justice right now. I have a wonderful interview that I'm going to share pretty soon on the podcast. Um, but anyway, so we talk about this case that is just a horrific injustice, definitely race related, awful. Then we go because the day hasn't been bright enough <laughs> to the jail and we take a tour of the jail and we learn about the heroin epidemic in Ooh. our part of Kentucky, which is why 85% of the people in jail are there and 85%? 70%. and 70% of them were repeat offenders. And so I'm just processing all of this, right? I'm thinking about whether our court system has been turned into a social work system by drug laws. I'm pretty sure it has. Yes, the answer is yes. I'm thinking about whether people are actually getting due process in a lot of circumstances. And I'm having all these thoughts. It's pouring down rain. I'm driving home. I sit at a stoplight for a couple of seconds and suddenly feel a truck ramming into the back of my car. Uh. And so then in the rain, I'm waiting for the police to come and to do all the things. My neck is hurting. Um, It was just a really crappy day. I'm very grateful for the session. I don't want to be down on the program at all. I mean, it was it did what it was supposed to do. Right. You're supposed to go experience that and have all those thoughts and be prompted to action by it. So kudos to the program. It was a bad day. And so I get home and it's also the day that the House passes the American Health Care Act. And I know that our listeners are going to want to talk about that on Twitter because our people are fantastic. And of course they are. So I just say, hey, everybody, I'm not going to be here tonight. I was in a car accident. I'm fine, but we'll do this later. And I got all these nice messages, but what makes me love our listeners so much is that people were like, you should probably get some ice cream. (laughs) That was the first suggestion. There was no ice, just ice cream. There were like multiple ice creams and um, pictures of Fiona the hippo from the Cincinnati Zoo tweeted my way. And I thought, these people know me, they get me. And it was wonderful. So thank you all for your support. I'm fine. I'm sore. I'm walking around like I'm... 90 something year old, years old. But um, fortunately, it was it was not a big deal. And it was it continues to be a very thought provoking day for me. Oh. Well, and I, I don't know if I put this article in one of our emails to your criminal justice discussion. I think I did. There was this great article I read where this woman in New York City had the same name and birthday as another woman. And so like the DMV is just not capable of sorting that out. Like that is just not that is not a scenario, although you would think that happens probably pretty regularly in a place like Manhattan, but like, 
or the one woman was in Bedstein, the other one was in Manhattan. It was just kind of like, like it just, they didn't have, they were, the, the DMV lady was like, you're just going to have to call me every time and I'll fix it, but we can't fix this permanently. It's never going to work. Um, and it was just really interesting because the one woman was white and lived in Manhattan and the one woman was black and lived in Bedstein and was just talking about, like she would just get pulled over and get tickets and all this stuff. And it just, it never ever happened to the white lady and like the conversations they had about it and how their lives had been affected and different because of class and race and all these different things. And they like became friends. It was a really great article, but it really illustrated this point of like the interactions with the criminal justice system, real different, just real different. You know, the other thing we should share, this is completely a different path and we're getting the heels out of control now, but so the car accident, the being rear-ended was more emotional for me than it should have been just because I was in a very traumatic accident when I was 17. And it was amazing to me how much your body just stores those experiences, right? Mm-hmm. So that crash, that collision impact just set all of those free in my in my brain. And I could hear flashing lights again. It was like I was 17 years old again, just in a second. But then you texted me an Atul Gawande article about the brain and how the brain takes in perception and also creates its own perception. That was fascinating. Oh my God, and I y'all, think that we'll we should it, put in the show notes. Yeah, it's called The Itch. And there's a moment. We won't. We can't talk about it. You'll read it. You'll know exactly what moment I'm talking about. Oh, my God, y'all. But it's an amazing article just talking about how a lot of what we assume about the brain is completely not what's happening in the brain and how our body is kind of coded with these life experiences that if even if they leave us and our brain doesn't really get that, we keep responding as though we're still in those experiences, which it was just interesting timing that you sent that to me at the same time as I was kind of dealing with the aftermath of this accident. Well, it's just so fascinating. He just talks about like, first of all, all everything Atul Gwande writes is genius and amazing. And I love him. But he talks about like, we think that our brain functions based on hard information that we're perceiving, but it's like, 20% of what we're taking in is hard information, but like 80% of what we're using to make to like, that's building our perceptions is like memory and past experience. Like we're just, we're filling in all these gaps and these holes, um, not based on like the actual light and sound and hard information we're taking in. It was just really interesting. And you should stay with it. It's a very long article and it goes to a place that you don't think it's going to when you start reading it. So it's really, really worth your time. So that's another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Thanks for joining us. We will be back on Friday to discuss um, news and listener feedback in our shorter episode, The Briefcase. Until then, we'll be posting on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where you can follow us and you can check out some of our additional content on how to become a supporter of the show on Patreon or by clicking Become a Supporter on PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. Thank you to our executive producer and my husband, Nicholas Holland, for all the help putting the show together and until next week keep it nuanced y'all 